What time is it? I would to God that the church in America would wake up because I believe we are a sleeping giant. I look out at these services that we're having today and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people and sometimes I think, God, what would happen if we were all awake? What would happen if each of us truly, genuinely owned the Great Commission? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are at the halfway point in our study of the Revelation. Consequently, Dr. Brogy is taking the opportunity to give a quick recap of what we've learned so far and to make note of the fact that the 21st century church is in great danger of being overtaken by some of the great deceptions listed in the Revelation and which will take place before the catching up or rapture of the church. In a message entitled, What Time Is It?, Pastor Carl today warns us that evangelicals today need to act before it's too late and we lose the opportunity to win millions to the kingdom of Christ. Take God's word. Would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1? Revelation chapter 1. We have been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book. And actually, when you come to the 13th chapter, you come to the middle of the book. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. If the 13th chapter is the middle of the book, that would mean there's 26 chapters. Well, it's the middle of the book. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. And I didn't want to break up the 13th chapter, but I thought here in the middle of the book, it would be helpful for us to stop, to pause, to reflect, and to think about why it is we are studying the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 3. It's a unique challenge found only in the book of Revelation. Here in the first chapter, the third verse, let me read it to you. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. God is telling us here today, read me, read this book, I am special, and if you read me and hear me and heed this book, you will receive a special blessing from God Almighty. Now, there are many general admonitions all the way through the Word of God to meditate on it, to saturate your mind in truth, but this is the only book in all the Bible that invites you to read it, to heed it, that you might be blessed in the process. Blessed is he who reads. Now, that particular admonition would especially be true of a first century lector, because remember, in the first century, there were no printed Bibles. There were scrolls that usually were deposited in one central place. You, if you were very wealthy, might own a page of Scripture or maybe even a book of Scripture, but very few had any complete Bible except where they were deposited, and you would go there for the weekly reading of Scripture or sometimes the daily reading of Scripture. So God gave an admonition and a word of encouragement to the person who would read it. Now, with that said, we live in a country where virtually a Bible is within hand's reach. You can find one in any town, in any place. And you could still apply this truth for your reading of the Scripture. Now, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I wonder how many of us in the last year have just read through the book of Revelation. This is an encouragement to us because, again, this is not the word of man. This is the word of God. 
And then he says, not only he who reads, but he who hears. He who hears, and I mean really hear it. You can hear it with your physical ears, but not with your spiritual ears. And Christ throughout the Gospels made that distinction. People who hear, but they don't really hear. And John is talking about people who really hear. We're three hours after the sermon. They haven't forgotten what's been said. They've heard it. They've embraced it. And God says, if you read it, if you hear it, and then if you heed it, if you obey it, that you will be blessed. There's a blessing when you take what you have heard and you apply it to your life. And when you think of Bible prophecy, especially the book of Revelation, where the major portion is all prophetic, when you think of prophecy, you should ask, how is this prophecy that I am studying changing my life? That's critical. And then he uh, closes the verse by saying, for the time is near. You could render it, the season is near. The next era of God's redemptive plan in history is close at hand. It is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And so as we will remind ourselves today, the New Testament speaks of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, John wrote that some 2,000 years ago. And if the return of Christ was imminent 2,000 years ago, how much more in our time? And so I want to ask the question this morning, what time is it? Not on your clock, but what time is it on God's clock? Turn to the book of Romans. We're going to look at a number of scripture this morning, but we'll turn to Romans chapter 13 for a moment. Romans, the 13th chapter, because this is a very important question to ask and answer, because remember, Jesus taught, the apostles taught, that the terminal generation, you say, what do you mean by that? There's a generation of people that will be the last generation of people on the earth before Jesus comes, and that could be our generation. And God warns that the terminal generation will be characterized by lukewarmness and lethargy, There'll be an apathy even in the church, even in the body of Christ. The hour is late, and most people do not have eyes to see it. We live in a time in human history where there is apathy that has just covered over the church. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time that is already, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to you when, than when, you, when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss. Now, some of us have very little difficulty waking up in the morning. Others of us struggle when the alarm clock rings. No two of us, I suppose, are exactly alike. We have a granddaughter, and she'd come into our room at 6 a.m. I'm hungry. She'd wake up at the crack of dawn. Some people, the thought of food in the morning is repulsive. Some have to wake up and have their coffee. Others have to have their orange juice. I had a roommate in college, and he'd raise the blinds at 6 a.m., and he'd say, get up, car, we're going running. 
Well, then he got married, and that didn't last too long. But waking up is important. Now, there are 55 references in the New Testament to waking up. Some of them speak of a literal waking up from sleep. But many of them refer to a metaphorical waking up, a spiritual waking up out of the carnality of the day. And that's what we're really looking at this morning. So three points, very simple on your outline. Number one, it is time to wake up. If you have ears to hear, it is time to wake up. And when you read verse 11, God's alarm clock is beginning to sound. Notice how it begins with two words, do this, do this. Now let's ask a question, to whom is Paul speaking? Remember, he's speaking to believers. The book of Romans has three critical divisions. One through eight is the doctrinal section, where he deals with justification, sanctification, glorification. Chapters 9 through 11 is the national section. It deals with Israel, how God elected Israel, chapter 9, how Israel is in unbelief and rejection, chapter 10, but how God will restore the people of Israel in the future, chapter 11. But when you come to the 12th chapter, he comes to the applicational, doctrinal, national, applicational. And so the 12th chapter says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he's speaking to brethren. He's speaking to born again, blood-bought children of God in this section of scripture. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now, unsaved people cannot wake up until they're born again. Prior to conversion, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't wake up. And apart from the miracle of a second birth, there is no life. And so while non-Christians are described as dead, the true Christian can be described, spiritually speaking, as asleep, and we need to wake up. And Paul has already told us in the beginning of this applicational section Don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world mold you into its structure, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. That's where the word of God comes in. Because when you're born again, you receive the mind of Christ. You have a new ability to receive truth, to see things that you didn't see or couldn't understand before you were saved. Why? Because a natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. But we have the mind of Christ. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book years ago, How Then Shall We Live? He's now home with the Lord, but I remember it. I was a relatively new Christian. It was in the mid-1970s, and they had a film series that came with it. But there was one section of the book that grabbed my attention. And he wrote these words. In a declining culture, one of its characteristics is that the ordinary people are unaware of what is happening. Only those who know and can read the signs of decadence are posing the questions that as yet have no answers. Mr. Average Man is comfortable in his complacency and is as unconcerned as a silver fish in a carton of discarded magazines on world affairs. He's not asking any questions because his social benefits from the government give him a false sense of security. This is his trouble and his tragedy. Modern man has become a spectator of world events, observing on his television without becoming involved. He watches the ominous events of our times pass before his eyes while he sips his beer in a comfortable recliner. 
He doesn't seem to realize what is happening. He does not understand his world is on fire and that he is about to be burned up with it. That's true of the dead man. That's the way you come into this world. Your body is physically alive, but it is spiritually dead. And when you move past the age of accountability, which is different for different children, you're dead in the arms of the evil one, blinded to the truth of the gospel. But the saved person has been born again. And unless you are born again, the scripture says you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so God is shouting to those who have been made alive, wake up. And we need to ask, especially in our day, what time is it? I would to God that the church in America would wake up because I believe we are a sleeping giant. I look out at these services that we're having today and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people and sometimes I think, God, what would happen if we were all awake? What would happen if each of us truly, genuinely owned the Great Commission? As you go, make disciples, make converts, preach the gospel to the whole world. Gossip the gospel everywhere you go, trying to see people come to Christ, sparking an interest in the things of God in their heart. What could happen? Yet unfortunately, many come and all they do is attend. They don't really serve anywhere, have no plans to serve. They may even come to an adult Bible fellowship, and I wish more of us did. Only about a third of all the adults even attend the ABFs. That will dramatically change your involvement in this church. That's a church within a church. That's where you meet people, where you can care for people. If you're not sure where to go, start with the discovery class because it's a 45-week discipleship course, not just for the new Christian, but it's also for the believer who wants to know how to disciple someone else. But you see, we live in a day where people are more concerned about their favorite football team, their Facebook page, or their favorite television show than they really are in the things of God. And I'm talking about God's people. I think of Napoleon as he visited China, and he said this, there lies a sleeping giant, as he saw the millions of people, even in his day, there lies a sleeping giant, and let him sleep. Because if he awakens, he will shake the world. And I think sometimes God may be thinking, there lies in my church a sleeping giant. And if she were to wake, she would shake the world. Now remember, at the end of time, the Bible teaches that most of God's people will be asleep. You can be saved, but sleeping. Jesus gave this warning, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, if they needed to wake up in the Apostle Paul's day, how much more do they need to wake up in our day? If you even know a little bit about the Bible, if you know the slightest amount of Bible prophecy, then you know that the stage is being set for the return of God's Son from heaven. Please notice carefully what he says here in verse 11. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Well, why is that, Paul? For, or you could say because, it's a causal, because now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, what does it mean that salvation is nearer to us than when we believed? You see here in verse 11 that Paul is speaking of another dimension of our salvation. 
Now, sometimes people read a verse like this. I don't get it, Paul. You've already said in Romans 5.1 that we've been justified by faith. We've been saved. We have peace with God. What are you talking about this near salvation? I already have this salvation. Well, listen, if some brash evangelist asks you if you are saved, you could say no and yes. Though it would be better to say really correctly yes and no. Yes, in the sense, if you have been saved, if you have been born again, that you have been justified, that you have been saved from the penalty of sin. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all of your sin, past, present, and future, is forever forgiven. You are declared righteous. You are clothed in a robe of righteousness forever, and that position can never, ever, ever be changed. But not only is there a present dimension to salvation, there's a future dimension as well. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's in the past. We're being saved right now as we grow in Christ from the power of sin. We refer to that generally as sanctification. But some glorious day when Jesus comes back for his church, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin and our salvation will be complete. And that's what he's looking at here in verse 11. This salvation is nearer to you than when you believe. He's speaking of that time when Jesus will come back and he will glorify his people. Now think your way through this. This is very important. The moment you get saved, you are immediately saved in your spirit. The Bible speaks in Hebrews 12 and 23 of the spirits of just men made perfect. My spirit is perfect in the sight of God. It's never going to get any better. But the scripture speaks of us on three levels. Now, sometimes in a broad sense, the soul can encompass the whole immaterial portion of man. But most technically in the Bible, God speaks of body, soul, and spirit. My spirit is immediately made perfect, but my soul, that is my mind, my will, my emotions, my suke, we get our word psychology from it. That's a work in progress. God is shaping me. He's conforming me into the image of his son. And yet there's a coming day when my body will be changed. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's a graphic piece of language that he's using when he describes the creative world around us. When Adam fell, all of creation fell with it. And so this week we witnessed a a hurricane that came upon Hawaii and volcanoes that are exploding and wildfires even in our own country and and there's uh, earthquakes in the last two weeks that have gone off in a number of different different places around the world. That's just God putting on us on notice that the creation is groaning, that it has fallen. And so we see expressions of that really month to month. But not only is the creation groaning, we're groaning. He then says in Romans 8.23, and not only this, But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 
Substitute in your mind the word salvation there for redemption and you'll get the meaning of Romans 13, 11. See, the salvation that is nearer to you than when you believe is that time when Jesus comes back and he takes you to heaven and you receive a glorified body like his. Paul will say in Philippians 3.21, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So I've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. I am being saved right now from the power of sin, but some glorious day I'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Christ will come back. And so he begins that epistle with these great words, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will absolutely complete it, perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that day is nearer to us than when we first believed, because every day that goes by, we are one day closer either to our own physical death, or we are one day closer to Jesus coming back from heaven. And so he who focuses on the reality, as this verse is speaking of, Christ coming back from heaven, he who focuses on his return, John says, purifies himself. If you really understand Bible prophecy correctly, it will have a purifying effect on your life. It will change the way you live today. And that's why here in the middle of the revelation, I want us to just stop and ask, am I being changed by this study of prophecy or am I just becoming a smarter sinner? Am I being more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus? Is he making me more like himself? Now, this motivation to live with the return of Jesus in mind should be a transforming experience. Do you remember when Paul uh, answered some of the questions that the church at Thessalonica asked him about? One of the questions they asked him about was concerning those who have already died before the return of Christ. And they wanted to know, they, they knew and believed, because the Old Testament affirmed it, that there would be a bodily resurrection uh, of God's people. But what they didn't understand was the order of events and how it would unfold. And so Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. He said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, is the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. It's called the rapture. It's called the harpazo. Every once in a while, you'll meet someone say, well, the, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, it's not found in our English Bible. There's a lot of words that aren't found even in our English Bible that we embrace as true because they represent theological expressions of what God has revealed, like the word Trinity, not found in the Bible, but that there is one God who lives in three co-eternal persons. I was witnessing to a Jewish man just a couple of days ago and he said to me, well, do you know in the opening verse of the Bible that the word God is in the plural? And his thesis was, is that there was not one God, but many gods. And of course, I quoted to him, in the beginning created God, and it is plural. In the beginning, singular verb, plural noun. And I said, no, the Bible does not teach that there's a multiplicity of gods. I said, think about it. You grew up going to synagogue. Yes, but I'm non-religious today. 
What did you say every Saturday? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. There is one God who exists in three persons, and even in kernel form in the opening chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God, plural, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. Let us make man in our image. And God begins to unfold that revelation. So the doctrine of the Trinity, the word Trinity is not a Bible word. It's a Bible thought. And the word rapture is actually a Bible word from the Latin translation, which was used more than any other translation in the history of the church. If you want to know what is the most widely used translation in all of church history, it's Latin. It was the exclusive translation of Christians around the world for 1,000 years. And that's why we get this word rapto that comes into English as rapture. Now, I don't care what you call it. You can call it the hapadzo. You can call it the catching up. You can call it the rapture. But the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. And it's important that you distinguish in your theology the difference between the second coming and the rapture because they are two different events. As this uh, next chart shows us, the rapture is the event where Christ comes for his church. We are caught up uh, and the dead in Christ rise for, first, and those of us who are alive at that event will meet the Lord in the air. Uh, we meet the Lord in the air at the rapture. He takes us to heaven, and this uh, event is called the day of Christ in the Bible. We're at the second coming. We come back with him. We get glorified bodies. We go to heaven. We are... Uh, evaluated for our service in Christ. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And then we come back with the Lord Jesus to the earth. That event is known as the Day of the Lord. It begins a very important time. That has yet to take place, of course, but it's a distinct event. So you read passages like, uh, we'll meet the Lord in the air, but then you read another passage like this in Zechariah 14. He's speaking of the return of the Messiah. And he says, in that day, his feet, Messiah's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem and you stand on the Mount of Olives, you look right across at the old city of Jerusalem. You see the Temple Mount where the temple once stood, and you see that ancient city. It's a city really within a city. It's only two and a half miles around in circumference, the old city. But nonetheless, Jesus is going to come back in the very mountain that he ascended up into heaven from, he is going to literally come back and he's going to split that mountain into and create a large valley. The Bible says there will be living water that will flow all the way to the Dead Sea. Have you ever been to the Dead Sea or read about it? You know it is the saltiest place on earth. It not only is it the lowest place on earth, it is the saltiest place on earth. Absolutely nothing not even the smallest microorganism can live in the Dead Sea. The Bible says the day is coming when they're going to fish in the Dead Sea and they're going to dry their nets next to it. That has never happened. It is going to happen when the Messiah returns. Two distinct events. Nothing, as I've told you, prophetically has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. It's an imminent event. Whereas all kinds of things need to happen for the second coming to take place. So we studied, if you were here last time in Revelation 13, of a one world government, of a one world mark, of a one world leader, of a one world false prophet that will rule the world. But nothing has ever needed to take place since Pentecost for Jesus to come and catch up his church. And that's why the New Testament writers speak of the imminent return of Christ. 
Tomorrow, when we continue our message entitled, What Time Is It?, we'll look at some of those New Testament passages that have a recurrent warning to take heed because the coming of the Lord is near. We're using the halfway point of our study in the Revelation to take note of what we've learned so far and how to apply it to our everyday lives such that we're not caught unawares and lose opportunity to share Christ with a world that desperately needs Him. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV36. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. For more information, call us at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, part two of What Time Is It? Join us then as we search the scriptures.